Hey, pronouncers, welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, Bruce from Printavo. We've got Mr. Stephen Farrag out of Campus Inc. and a very special guest. Hey, Bruce, we got to pause the podcast. Um, we have some sponsors that we'd like to announce. Uh, we're so fortunate that we have uh, our sponsors with us. They've helped support print hustlers in the past. Graphic Source specializes in providing high-quality, production-ready art, dedicated staffing solutions for decorators around the world, including Campus Inc. With industry-leading quality on high-end color steps, professionally digitized files, pixel-perfect product mock-ups, and order entry solutions, Graphic Source is to make sure a positive measurable impact on your business. We use GraphX in our shop. They're integrated in our Printavo. We appreciate the guys over there, Lucas, Rob, Brent, Nick Wood, and our artist, Jeannie. You are fantastic. Easy way. Thank you to Alex and the team and Jordan for helping to sponsor everything that we always do. Um, you shouldn't spend all day cleaning dirty screens. Easy Way's line of environmentally conscious chemicals will get the job done faster and more efficiently and will cost you a fraction of what you're currently paying. Now, definitely check them out, easyway.com. Uh, we use 842 and 701 in our shop, um, and uh, they are definitely the easiest way. Bruce, have you heard of Multicraft Daddy? Who? Multicraft Daddy. If you don't follow <laughs> Multicraft Daddy on Instagram, that's Multicraft underscore Daddy, as well as Multicraft. Uh, if you need ink and supplies or a daddy, hit up Multicraft. Uh, they have been so instrumental in our growth at, at Campus Inc. Uh, if you're wondering where to get Monarch Ink from, Multicraft is your is your place to go to. Um, thank you so much, Multicraft, for sponsoring the podcast. Uh, excited for the partnership together. Thank you, Multicraft and Multicraft Daddy. Dave Eggers, thanks again. Shauna Federson, thank you so much for joining us. Founder of Game Day, Game Day Couture. Um, I was doing a little creeping. You've been working on for Game Day for almost 12 years, too. Have been involved right. in Shark Tank. She got asked about that. There's just a lot, actually. We have a lot of notes. No, thanks for having me. First of all, it's awesome being on the show. Like, listen, you guys have been crushing it and been doing a lot of things in your space that we're trying to also move into and do. So I'm a big fan of you guys and what you guys are doing. Sweet. So Shauna, well, everyone guys wants... Oh, we met, we got introduced um, in the collegiate space. We're doing a lot of stuff with NIL. So we got connected, um, I think on LinkedIn, we started chatting and I was just so fascinated. I was at the Sportswear Tailgate Show last week in Vegas, which uh, for those of you that don't know, it's a whole nother world of decorated apparel. Um, we got connected and started chatting and um, it kind of blew my mind of just how that world works. And so we'll have to dive into that a little bit. But, you know, Shauna, you were on Shark Tank. Uh, tell us a little bit about that experience. Listen, many moons ago, right? It's like I mean, those years pass by and you're like, wait, where did they all go? No, it was awesome. Like if I had uh, to ask, I guess you want the short version or the shorter version? Get, give us, the, the give us your favorite version. version. I'm just kidding. No, it was really fun. Um, li listen, everything about Shark Tank, you know, we've been asked everything under the moon that you could possibly ask someone probably. Uh, we've heard it all, all the different questions, but I have to say it was an incredibly authentic experience. Um, we actually stumbled into it. We didn't like like reach out and try to apply or go on the show or anything like that. It just happened to be timing, which I have never gotten right in my entire life. Um, but we were in Atlanta and, or I guess God got it right for us because uh, there was a huge rainstorm and it flooded um, the, the subway system. It's called the Marta there. I don't know if you're familiar with ATL, but um, it's really cool. Like the way that it went down, basically our show was it's all but canceled because only vendors really showed up. Nobody was able to get there. And so my husband and I were driving around downtown and I saw this little lady standing outside saying Shark Tank auditions, putting a sign up. And I was like, no way, like no way. <laughs> so I, he goes, I look at him and he's like, there's no way on this earth that you are dragging me. So I guess 30 minutes later, we're in the show, of course, trying to <laughs> sign up and audition. Of course I dragged him in. It was like, Holy oh, tell cow. me no. Let's go. No, it was so funny. It was just timing place. It was just crazy how it all kind of panned out. So we actually went in, we pitched um, to the local producers there and then we thought nothing of it. We went back to our show and finished the show. We were actually doing back-to-back -back shows. So that sports licensing show that you were just talking about, um, we had another one that, was right in front of it in, in Atlanta. And so we had to ship our set and we were out of time. So we actually loaded our set. This is one of those like early business. You got to do what you have to do to get there kind of moves. So we, we packed up our set days. and like, 
Fifth, yeah, oh yeah. We packed up our set in like 15 boxes on Southwest and like put them on lug- as luggage. <laughs> I remember those days. I remember oh, those I'll, days well. I'll tell you, we uh, we ship our we we ship for the trade shows and stuff, and we use like a logistics company. And oh, Bruce yeah. doesn't use us. a logistics company too often, and so he was use we use the same one. And he messaged them and they go, sorry, sir, you don't spend enough with you. We're going to drop you. And so I'm like, oh, Bruce, yeah. I got you. Just call my guy. We'll, we use the same company. And then they go, unfortunately, we're dropping you, too. So we just got oh our LTL. Hey, look, if you're a logistics company and you could, and you want to sponsor this podcast, Bruce and I are out right now. We'd <laughs> love to sponsor you, actually, because we need to pay somebody to handle this. Tra- but yeah, I remember the trade show experience well. We did that. The Southwest oh two free bags. You throw it on there, oh, yeah, you buy yeah. stuff, throw it out, get it on Amazon. That's right, we threw it out. And we get a call at that show, and it's the producers, and they're like, hey, we love your story. Um, will you be considered for um, the upcoming show? What we you know, we have to go through this process or whatever. And I was like, sure, whatever. I, again, not really putting much stock into it because it wasn't a part of our business model or plan, right? And um, I, it took about six months of them vetting us as a business because it was kind of in the height of Shark Tank, like, frenzy, right? And so six months vetting with producers. And then we finally, they flew us out to Los Angeles, actually, um, you know, flew us out to the studios. And uh, they said, Hey, listen, you're, unfortunately, you drew like the last slot of the last day. So it's probably not guaranteed that you're going to go on, but you have to stay here all week anyways. (laughs) And we were like, okay. So we stayed out there for an entire week and we you know, as luck would have it, we actually ended up getting to go on and pitch. Um, but it was brutal waiting in your trailer and watching all the like white faces that like, come out or tears come out back. You know, they would bring them back in the um, golf carts to their trailers. And you're like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> like that dude had so much confidence going in. And he is just like white as a ghost and he's in tears. And it was brutal sitting there waiting. But um, Mr. Wonderful just it, handed it to him. Oh, yeah. No, I don't know. I think it was just more like, hey, uh, how authentic are you? And like, what are you here for? Um, so we went on, we went on, of course, we just, again, uh, my husband and I chalk it up to, Hey, listen, if this pans out great, if it doesn't, it doesn't change a, a skip a beat in what we're doing. So were you guys full time too, by the way, then I'm sorry. Was this, were, were you, you guys part time or full time? Oh, yeah. We were full time. Like it had already, it had already started to scale beyond what we could control. And so we were like desperate for cash. Like we needed cash for inventory. So this was just one of those, like, I don't have a clue what we're going to get ourselves into, but let's just go see. And I said, um, let's just go in there and we know our numbers, we know our stuff. When we know the market is just, nobody's covering it. So what's, you know, what's to lose? Just don't say something stupid. Like, right. (laughs) I said, okay. Um, so a lot of the schools, man, they didn't really want to sign off at first. Um, certain schools, you know, said, no, you know, we don't want our brand on, on any you know, national shows, regardless of whatever it is. Cause we can't, if we can't control it. So we have some great schools that really got behind us. Of course, our alma mater, um, Oklahoma state, they were really cool. They let us do the whole set, like decked out in their gear and like the whole backdrop. But, um, yeah, no, we went on, we pitched and it was actually the easiest pitch that I've ever given because it was just authentic and it was real. And it was just our story and our numbers aligned and everyone, I think, understood at the time that there was really nothing in the marketplace and the pitch of the buying power of women. I mean, come on, they do 80% of the buying in a household typically in decision-making. So it was kind of a no brainer um, from an investment standpoint. It was just, who are we going to get uh, to support it? And, and who do we feel like we align with? And of course we ended up making a deal with Mark and he is an amazing an amazing investor. Um, he's been incredibly supportive the entire way. And of course, our, our business philosophies align. But um, as they say, the rest is history from there. Uh, we kind of kept growing uh, year over year. Um, I haven't really needed the power of, you know, Mark's muscle necessarily as a company that thank goodness, because our, our industry has just embraced us and has continued to help us elevate and grow. Um, but it just goes to, you know, kind of prove the age old thing of if there's a market demand and you can fill it and you can add value and truly show incremental uh, distribution or growth, like you've got a business. So just believe in it and go after it. Not saying it's going to come easy. Real quick, because I think we got to dive into what exactly is Game Day Couture as well. But also the deal, the deal though, what, yeah. so we, we got to go know, in the whole thing is the pitch. Right. I'm raising X percent for this. I'm doing this in sales. Gosh. And then what happened? Uh, I think we were asked for um, 500000 for 
um, which was really a standard at that time. Like it was like the standard go-to at that, those last two seasons. So it was kind of mm-hmm. like this or nothing, kind of a little bit of an attitude, even though there were people that went in with others, it was kind of that. So um, that's what we asked for. Um, we, you know, obviously we made the deal with Mark and um, Game Day Couture, just so we can backtrack the answer to your question there, we manufacture women's licensed sports or fan apparel basically so in the market at the time literally i two years prior to the show or three years prior to the show i would google women's ncaa apparel women's ncaa t-shirt and nothing would come up except for a light pink jersey and a nightgown and i was like you gotta be kidding (laughs) so it was brutal at the time so it it didn't the market didn't exist the product didn't exist or the market existed the product didn't excuse me um so yeah we closed the deal with him and we've been manufacturing distributing women's licensed apparel um we're now the biggest women's manufacturer and distributor with all colleges. Um, we have every sub license deal in the, in the country now. So we're, we're pretty um, grateful for our position in the industry and where we've come. Wow. So, so many just questions. talk percentage growth from where you started to where you're at now. How much growth have you gone through? And we'll let, we'll let listeners know. imagine you can do some math. I, don't even in your know head. The number. I mean, we went from nothing to where we are now. So um, well, because that valuation was two and a half million then, right? So, yeah, did it, you share the numbers uh, of sales growth then, or where you were at? Um, yeah, we were. Yeah, we, that's what the valuation was. We're between. Um, we're north. I'll just say um, we're in between twenty and fifty million. I'll leave it at that. There's a lot <laughs> so, of zeros. No, there's okay. a lot of zeros. Yeah. Seriously, there's hold a lot on. of zeros there. But hold on, uh, I'm going to leave amazing. a range just for for purposes, but no, we, um, like I said, we were so fortunate that, uh, we just were kind of pushing and believing in what we knew was there and existed. And it took a long time. I mean, everyone says, you know, you go on Shark Tank and your business explodes overnight. Well, no, actually like our industry wasn't still wasn't quite ready as far as like the buyers of the product in our industry. They weren't ready for the women's market because they didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know how to market it. I mean, you got to remember these were a lot of these places were, um, age, like, traditional sporting goods stores or fan shops that had been in these college towns for decades, you know, family owned and they were a bunch of dudes running them. And they're like, what do we do with this shirt? <laughs> so it took a lot of convincing still um, to get the market to pick up on it. But we wow. took the risk on the inventory and then they, they saw it just fly off the shelf and it, you know, the rest was history from there because it's continued. Wow. To just so when you, when you got off shark tank, you know, you're mm-hmm. a smaller business, you don't have very many licenses mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a market. What was your next strategy? Was it like door to door sales? Did you use reps? Like you had to be very oh, aggressive. You had to preprint some inventory yeah, for all online these schools. Like, how so did, it was rough. Yeah. I think we had 27 or 30 licenses at the time we went on the show. And I had went on, I had, my husband and I had gone on a mission to like really attain the SEC. That was the kind of the, you know, Alabama SEC. Those were the, the, schools that we were really trying to target. Um, when we started, when we went on the show and we had already acquired those licenses, thank goodness, um, that really opened the floodgates. And so every single school, just now that Alabama was on, now that we were in a, we actually at that same show that we shipped our product to, we were asked to become an Ohio state sub licensee. That was the first year they did their and in one deal. So we became a licensee for them. And, um, yeah, we ended up having to take a risk on inventory for a while. Um, it was really challenging because our industry has long lead times. Like we'll book orders in January, but we won't ship them till July. And so they weren't necessarily in stores until August. And then we don't get paid for 30, 60, 90 days later after that. So can you imagine like the long lead times? It, it was brutal, you know, financially and risk wise of the inventory. Um, so we certainly so, have a fair share. So hold on one second, Shauna, one second. So in our, in, in yeah. our screen printing industry, we preach getting paid up front, getting paid up front, getting paid up front. Mm-hmm. And there are industry leaders that are like, don't even take an order if you can't get paid up front. That does not exist in your space, correct? It does not. In the B2B world, in the because we, we were B2B first, um, we had to be. That was part of the licensing agreements. And that is certainly something that it you know. <laughs> like they're going to say, no, pass, pass. Next vendor, please. It's just not a thing. Um, so yeah, a lot of risk, lots and lots of risk. Wow. So how do you get those licenses? I'm, I'm new to this space, like, Steven, mm-hmm. how, how does a shop get that if they're on a college campus? <laughs> That's why I was hanging out with Shauna and Kurt, because I'm like, uh, you know. Is it just like meeting people or is it what? 
Well, no, um, sorry, Jot for the position. I'll just tell like shops. The position I'm yeah. in is like we have a license for the University of Illinois. We're crushing it for U of I. And now I'm like, OK, we're getting athletes at different schools and the athletes want to do their jerseys and jerseys and all that stuff. And you literally have to like go one at a time to try and get them. Right. So mm-hmm. it's. I'm in a very difficult spot because I have to try and get all of these licenses. And so if we want to pitch to these athletes, we need these licenses. So Shauna, tell us about that journey of, of how you have to acquire them. It's difficult. You know, apparel is the hardest one to attain. Um, it just is. And then there are certain categories of apparel that we actually are licensed for, but we aren't licensed for other um, categories because they're exclusive to certain vendors. So they do a pretty good job of like making sure that there's not a lot of you know, cannibalizing in the market of sales, but their biggest pitch is how are you going to show incremental, you know, unique product or unique distribution? Well, we felt that we had both, um, but it still wasn't enough. You know, like I mentioned, we incorporated in June of 2010, but I think I only had our, well, at the time for apparel, you had to stay in state only. Like they, they required you to prove your concept in state. So they denied you guys or it's just No, you just had to follow that process in order to go out. You had to go within your state at the time for one year and then you could grow outside of your state. So as soon as we could grow outside of our state, we were we were on the phones with licensing directors, you know, explaining to them our model, what we were doing, how it's selling out. But, yeah, it was one by one by one by one um, until until we got the, you know, the Bama license and the SEC license and some of the others um, that were really incremental at the time because apparel was just brutal to get into. And then once we had that concept, then the others followed, followed suit and it was a lot easier to apply and to get that, um, really backing, I guess, and support, but it was still one by one. It, it's, it took, I think we're up to 200 and I don't remember after the show, I think we're up to 271 now, um, licenses. I know we're over 250. Um, so it's, but it, think about that, you know, it, that's a long time to, to attain all those licenses that many years. So it's taken, um, each one of them has their own unique, you know, philosophy or reason why they do or don't feel like they need another licensee in the category. So and then you we manage really respect the, our relationships. That royalties that, cause I know Steven, you're always talking about too, that, oh, okay, we got to pay royalties. We got to collect this. We're going to track that. Yeah. We do it in the yeah. Greek space and it's tough. It's not easy. I think that's probably what the most people are unprepared for is how brutal the back end is on royalty reporting. Yeah. Um, and you have to be very dialed in. I mean, it's, it's a tax that you have to pay, um, for the right to sell that stuff and you have to be educated on it and it's not easy, um, for sure. And you don't want to mess it up either. (laughs) Um, you definitely don't (laughs) want to mess it up. So Shauna, you talk about inventory, which is also a scary Mm -hmm. word. So you, you said purchase orders and 90 day terms, which shops listening to this are like, Oh my gosh, I don't know how I'd survive without getting paid for 90 days. And you talk about inventory risk. So the products that you're selling to bookstores and fan stores and all that are finished. Who's doing Mm -hmm. the decoration? Were you all doing the printing of it? Tell us about that. Um, well, I, we've done it every, every way you can dream of, right? We, um, owned a fulfillment center. We actually purchased a print facility, um, for about a year and a half. I got in it as fast as we got out of it as fast as I got in it. I think we owned it for about 18 months and then we outgrew it. (laughs) So it was, we, we bought it so that we could control the floor space and always have space. And then we ended up outgrowing it. So we, we got out of it quickly, but, um, no, we, we've done it all. You know, I've, I, I literally remember being, on the floor or heat pressing or doing things anytime I can in your spare time. It's what you do as an owner. Right. Um, but we've, we've done everything, um, from vertical all the way up, except for we've always manufactured our goods, our product overseas or domestically. We have, um, factories that we work with both, both internationally and domestically, but no, we actually, uh, determined, I don't know what it was about the time that we outgrew our print facility was about the time that we met one of our print-on-demand partners. And that was a game-changer for us. We had been looking for a way to leverage our inventory because it really stings when you have to um, liquidate 20 pallets of merchandise <laughs> that are pre-printed that you don't need. Like that's, like, that's that moment when you go, there's got to be a better way <laughs> than this. So we, at that year, we, we went, listen, we're never going to preprint a good again, unless it's a, a solid retailer that we're shipping to. And all of, a lot of the, you know, circumstance behind that, like I would, we weren't looking to just, you know, 
ship off 20 good, 20 pounds of goods. It just, the way that the industry works and the flow and some things are relevant and some things aren't. So we do a lot of trend and fashion products a lot. So our core pieces and our basics, of course you can rebring this back, but some of the other stuff, you know, we had to move on from and, and we didn't have a choice. So when we met our POD vendor, um, we started working with them. They really aligned with us from a philosophy standpoint of tech first. And that was huge for us um, because we had been trying to implement that a lot in a lot of areas of our business. And I feel like that's a foundation for where anyone should be in business in today's world is if tech's not first, then you're probably behind already. Um, what, because manual is just What's the split of the business that sells to other retailers versus you guys doing direct? Uh, as far as direct to consumer versus B2B right, right now? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that it is... It's a, that's a hard question to answer. Here's why. Um, it is 60, 40. However, it's more like 75, 25, because we do a lot of direct to consumer via our retail partners, meaning we drop ship for them. So it's like, if you ask me for the definition of direct to consumer, it depends on how you want to, like, are you talking if we're selling it or if they're selling it, but direct to consumer fulfillment it's 75-25. I mean, the majority of our sales just go out online, right? However, right. it's 60-40 whenever we're talking um, our, us versus them and 60 being our retail partners still so and 40 being our growth. What, what would you say? So, I mean, this is incredible growth. I mean, going from, you know, about a million in sales when pitching Shark Tank to over 20 million in sales now, I'm reading this article. Uh, what were like the pivotal pieces was it like okay we these these marketing campaigns were huge or these hires were huge or these distribution lines were huge that really helped crank up the the trajectory of the business i think it was solving problems adding value so our our philosophy internally is how are you adding value today period and that could be to a customer that could be to as far as like an, an actual consumer or that could be a customer as in a retail partner of ours if you're not adding value then why are you in business because they don't care about your product and how cute it is necessarily. How are you adding value to their business or their day? And that's something that we just like live and breathe. And if, if we're not answering that question, then the answer's wrong, right? So adding value became a big mission of ours from an inventory positioning standpoint. We saw that long before our retail partners maybe even saw it, we saw that inventory risk was huge for them. And if we could do anything to uh, help mitigate some of that risk, uh, we knew that we had would position ourselves in a, in a really solid place in our industry. So we started looking at the drop shipping method or the print on demand method long before the pandemic. Um, we started looking at those avenues because we saw specific larger brick and mortar retailers going, you know, if we don't hit these, you know, sell through rates or we don't do this and we're going to have to come back and do chargebacks or X amount. And I thought, well, how do we just make this better in general where you guys can just get whatever you want, whatever you want it and put it on the floor instead of having to take these huge POs and take all this risk. So we started investing into the technology and better processes and better ways a long time ago. And that, that was huge because we were the first, um, one of the first two in our industry that started offering drop shipping period. So when the pandemic hit, um, that that wasn't when we necessarily scaled, but when the pandemic hit, it was just like nobody could get inventory from anywhere. So mm-hmm. we became a massive resource for all sorts of categories because we had already established that and had it up and running. So wow. I would say the investment into the inventory positioning was mm-hmm. the, the pivotal moment for us. So you had I, the I stock think- when nobody else did. Um, yes, but before the pan, for sure for the pandemic, but also but the tech, the, pandemic, the tech, um, to be able to integrate the tech and then the stock before the pandemic was flexible, which is huge. So I'm going to give Got you an it. example. Our biggest retail partner would order, I don't know, 18 to 35 teams initially. And with our inventory and being able to be flexible with it, we can service all 250 teams now. She doesn't gotcha. have to just order because she didn't want to take a risk on those initial teams either or on the expanded assortment of teams either. So now we're able to service all teams because of the flexibility of the inventory. So, which is so cool it's, it's so it's like, hey, we'll put smaller amounts of inventory in brick and mortar, but we'll also leverage our technology so that you don't have to take a crazy risk. And if there's a school that's popping off, we'll, right. we'll get that one going. And so that's it allowed right. you to go like wide. But then it didn't feel like your retailers or your partners were, were saying yes to a lot, right? 
And I think no, that's, I mean, that's so, sure. yeah, that's like, I mean, we talk to shops a lot about fulfillment and mm-hmm. some things, you know, our industry is starting to get into fulfillment so that we can cut off the supply chain so that our partners don't have to order 24 shirts every time. Right. And that's why there's this huge rise of DTG and DTF and, you know, using warehouse management. And, um, I mean, I don't feel as bad now. I went through a warehouse management system that cost me an arm and a leg and hearing you say you had to liquidate 20 pallets. Um, oh. just think about Man. that. If you're listening no, to this, 20 the pallets. Warehouse management system, <laughs> we've invested into three different systems so far, and they've all been a big pile, like piece of junk. Three systems. And it's like, that is like our arch nemesis. There's not a system that we haven't put a ton of money into that's worked for us once yet. And something that we had, we didn't have to go in there and tweak or build a custom arm ourselves because it just wasn't applicable. Um, but I think that speaks to the, the like tech, tech itself. I think it's outdated very quickly and I just not necessarily not applicable, but a lot of the larger players in the industry of tech and and some of the apparel world for us, I mean, they're still doing business on EDI, which think of the green screen with like the DOS and like the the little characters. That's what you see. Yes. It's just brutal. (laughs) You're like, not ideal. Okay. guys. (laughs) And, And how much is EDI? If you want to use it, I heard some crazy numbers. Um, it depends on how you structure it. Of course, we like we're super old school bootstrap everything you can mentality, no matter what how big you get, just because we just we live our lives that way, right? So we're like absolutely not. We're not paying for the premium like Ferrari version of this. But um I think that if we wanted to facilitate EDI through one of the largest partners, it was gonna cost us a minimum of 150k a year just to do the fulfillment um to our vendors. And I was like, mm, no. <laughs> No. So a hundred and fifty thousand dollars, and you even contemplated it. You're like, eh, yeah. it might be. I mean, if you, wow, we get. If we can justify it. We can justify it, but it it's like it's ridiculous. If you can kind of build a better way, why not? So we're building a better way. So let's talk about technology and what a business should be spending on technology because, you know, like we joke about it. We have a Printabo Facebook group and uh, I might I might throw some shade on some people that complain about a hundred dollar price increase. How much do you feel like a shop or should be spending on technology, whether it's apps or zaps or subscriptions or an engineer? Is it a percentage of your business that you allocate every year? Like how much do you spend on on the on the the robots on the cloud? Um I don't know that we I don't know that I would ever give a blanket approach for every business because every business is entirely different. Sure. Um, but I would give a blanket approach for education. And I would say if you are thinking about technology at a minimum, like you need to take like at least 30 to 40 hours and educate yourself on that technology so that you really know what you're making an investment into. And so that way you don't really have anything to complain about later. I think a lot of people complain because they never educate themselves. And so they want something to blame when things aren't working. When in reality, did you pick the right thing or do you even know how to use it? Um, a lot of our early investments in technology we thought were junk and we were wrong. We employed people that set them up inaccurately or incorrectly. Huh. So it was our fault and we needed to take the blame for that. So that's whenever I became a big proponent of education on technology. But I would say it's a percentage of our product. Um, our cost of goods, you know, we always put a percentage of tech into our cost of goods and tech being defined as uh, whether it's the program to develop it or whether it's a program to ship it to the consumer. It's a part of the cost of goods. And if we don't build that in, then we're making a huge mistake. So we, we build that into our cost of goods. Wow. I think, I mean, when you just talked about education and implementation, how many pieces of technology do you have layered on top? Cause we get asked a lot like, Oh, so this doesn't do that. I need it to do everything. Right. Like how many, how many different we always joke about how many apps yeah. I use. Have you dove yeah, into that side, I, like the the big ERP side, then, or to use everything in one, or is it a lot more patchy? Um, it's a little bit patchy because of our fulfillment um, partners, because of that specific um, arm of the. Um, we're talking B two B for a second, so B two B that specific arm because of how they they've they built out their own um, in house tech stack that uh, works for their systems instead of like 
going with a, an out-of-the-box one, and it's worked really well for them because it's continued to allow them to evolve into fulfillment and everything else, um, as well as direct decorating. So that is a piece of it that adds a layer. Um, we have two pieces from there, our EDI component, and then our we just actually switched ERP, um, ERP systems again because our EDI provider was grouped into our ERP system, which sounded good, but mm. they just can't keep pace with everything that we're doing. So it was very slow, um, integrated. It was just awful. So we have a three part component there. I would say now on our direct to consumer e-com, we are on Shopify plus. Yes. We have like 45 apps. And even though we have great, um, a great, uh, front end. And I think that it's really, um, amazing. The 2.0 update with Shopify helped a lot with solving a lot of those problems. We did eliminate probably another 30 apps, but we still have a, a good solid amount. And it's because it just, at the end of the day, what's everybody's complaint right now in every industry? They can't get what? Stop. People. Labor. Oh, people. people. <laughs> so I, I, I love Software. people. I'm a huge, <laughs> no, people. They can't get anyone to do the work. So I, I look, we looked at tech a long time ago. I'm a huge investment. I love investing in people and I love helping them with personal growth. But at the end of the day, life happens. And so if you want your business to keep running, tech doesn't stop and it keeps evolving. So we started to elevate people into more personal, you know, role, personable roles where they could actually make a difference with, you know, human interaction. And we started to replace a lot of the lower level, um, manual things that they were doing with as much tech as we could. And it was the best decision we've made in our company philosophy wise today. Again, it backs everything we do. So 45 apps just layered into Shopify just to go direct to consumer. Um, Bruce, can you and explain? And that's a choice. That's a choice. And, and, <laughs> and I think we use a lot of apps, but at scale, it's mm -hmm. still your least expensive employee, right? Like it's very, still, very it's yeah. still really inexpensive. Bruce, can you explain to listeners what a tech stack is? Because you said this word stack and for some people they're like, what is, what does that mean? Bruce, can you explain that? Cause you're on the development side. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just a layer of things that you like, there's a backend tech stack, which is Printavo, like there's the database and this layer and that layer. And then on the front end, like for Shopify, it's like, you've got all these different layers of applications that do different things. It could be one is a pop-up or one is custom checkout. Um, one is like a page builder, um, special fulfillment stuff, shipping stuff. So, but the whole world is definitely moving towards this, like, uh, app ecosystem. I mean, we've had it since the iPhone, right? Um, it's, it's not new. It's just now it's on the web. It's not just on your phone. You know, you know, though, what's interesting. Um, I, I was very curious on those different bend points, which is definitely seems you touched on. I'm curious, what are some of the mistakes you wouldn't have? You wish you could go back and not make maybe, um, in um, your, in your journey here. No, I would say some of the, I've made a ton of mistakes. Who hasn't in business, right? Like, um, I try not to dwell on the past a lot, um, because I don't think that that solves any issues. I'm a big fan of like, I don't subscribe to negativity and just continuing to complain about stuff. That is not, that is nothing for my mentality and psyche to keep motivating me to move forward. Wait, can you, human... can you repeat that for shops? <laughs> Maybe in a couple of Facebook groups. Can you say that you don't subscribe you... to what? You don't subscribe to negativity and you certainly don't subscribe to the complain train, which is just getting on the train and never getting off of complaining because those people just drag you down. And I feel like those people are stay miserable in life and they'll end up dying miserable because they're just focused on complaining. I'm like, I'm not riding the complain train, girls. No, guys, sorry, not on it. I'm, I'm going to take the bus or I'm going to take the plane. <laughs> so no, it's really toxic. Um, it really is. And we, I hate to be brutal, but we almost always, I won't say we, my team is really good about like kind of running those people out of our company. Um, because if you have that type of cancer in your organization of someone that's just always finding something, someone or whatever to complain about, it drags everybody's mentality down. And the focus should be, I'll flip the script. I'm always looking in the mirror going, I know I did something wrong. How can I improve? How can I be better? If you're not mm -hmm. asking how you can be better, how you can add value, then you're not, you're not growing. You're dying. You don't, maybe don't know you're dying, but you're dying as a business. But like, um, so is there like top two or three, like, okay, we shouldn't have maybe bought this building because it wasn't this or that, or like, like, 
I don't know. Oh, I was yeah. sending Farag one the other day where I feel like my leadership style has been totally off for the last year. I've been trying to like almost direct individual decisions versus just saying this high level problem. And I think it's caused a lot of like, oh, like Bruce is back in it. Um, you could tell because things are kind of a mess now again. And so I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely sure. like trying to move in the other direction. Um, or, or like a bad high, I, I don't know. Like we rushed to oh, hire. Yeah. That was really bad in the past year and literally Absolutely. set us back months. Absolutely. You make bad decisions all the time in business. It's what you do about them, period. I mean, think about it. Like how did we possibly, how could we possibly have known that buying a screen print facility was going to be a good decision or not? Right. We, we just, at the time, it <laughs> Wait, was a what problem year was for that? Um, gosh, I don't, I'm terrible at dates. Let's see. 2017, maybe 2017. Okay, okay. Um, it was, they were in our way. It was meaning like we couldn't grow because we couldn't get the capacity on the floor. And I got tired of hearing that. Right. So I, I certainly didn't have any business being in the screen print business, but I had been going to screen printers and working with printers for long enough that I knew we can, we can figure it out. We'll figure it out. And we retained all the staff. But like I said, just as soon as we bought it, we had to turn around and sell it. So that the way that you look at things is you have to, Sometimes as an owner, like we always call it um, getting out from behind the mower because we, we've actually owned businesses prior to being in this business and we own a landscape company. And I always tell my husband, get out from behind the mower. You cannot work on the business if you're pushing the damn lawnmower. <laughs> get out from behind the mower. <laughs> These are early days, right? These are like straight right, out of college right, days. And I mean, it's, it's so true. Yeah, I don't think it ever changes so, though. But but how yeah. do you evaluate then how to verticalize? And this is for you too fair but like you know it is interesting do you bring something in house or do you outsource right you just went through it with on the fulfillment side um shauna you went through it on like literally trying to go up market that's not necessarily a bad decision though a lot of businesses definitely verticalize so how how do you evaluate that in the future i think for us we looked at it like what are we good at and what are we not good at and it continued there continued to be a resounding theme of managing personnel and staff, um, there wasn't a huge pool of labor where we were at and we kept hoping that there would be a bigger pool and it mm. just wasn't, it just wasn't there. And so instead of continuing to hope that the people were going to show up and like scratch and claw and find out where they were, we decided we're not any good at running a facility and trying to pull people in from three or four cities away. This is absurd waste of time. Um, let's be good at what we're good at, which is sales and marketing. And let's let someone else worry about, you know, the fulfillment and the print side of things. And when, and again, I think it's looking at yourself and being incredibly self-aware, huge, huge, huge proponent of being self-aware um, and knowing what you are good at and aren't good at, but then also like just realizing what the limitations are and stop trying to act like they aren't there and embrace the fact that they're there so that you can solve them with a different maybe trajectory or, or position and put yourself in a better spot to go after what you're actually really good at and focus on those things. So, and for the building as aspect, I mean, we just ran the numbers and we were like, listen, even if we bought this um, building in this uh, facility at X amount of dollars, it would take us, you know, two years to pay that down in a traditional market. But if we sell this much more because we have it, it was justified. And we just made it a mission to sell that much more that year. And it was completely justified. So we, we ended up selling it for exactly what we bought it for. And it was a clean break, you know? And some may wow. look at that as waste of time or whatever, but not at all. I looked at it as a stepping stone. It helped us get through that year. It got us exactly to where we needed to be numbers wise. We wouldn't have hit those numbers if we didn't have control of that floor. And we were able to move on to the next step. So, yeah. so I think the, the, the takeaway there is that no regret, like there's no regret that you bought that facility and had to get None. in and out of it, you know? And I think I was a real sad, sad individual about December 20 something when we had to scrap our WMS, but I wouldn't have found a 3PL because of it. Right. Yep. And so I think for shops like listening to this, if you're a half a million dollar shop, $300,000 shop, two, three, four, five million $5 shop, you will hire the wrong people, make the mistakes, oh, yeah. get the wrong software, integrate it wrong. Like that is the journey that you're on. But it's just like, what's your next stone? It's just a game of, of, of stepping stones. Um, and I think that the biggest thing that I think is most inspiring, you've been at this, well, it's called Shark Tank 2017. It's 2022. You've gone through explosive amounts of growth, but you've also made a absorbent amount of these mistakes that you talk about, but nothing hmm. has stopped you. You've just said, okay, 
what's what's the next hurdle that we're going to get to and then how are we going to solve for that um but i think when you say like get get out from behind the mower this is what for listeners like ryan casperian was was caused a whole feud about of shop owners that are stuck behind a printing press um or stuck behind delivering shirts look what happens when you actually can start working on your business um i guess let's talk about like your your direction with people obviously running a big business like this what does your leadership team look like i mean you know do you have like vp of sales ops like ceos how do you how do you how do you keep it all together because that's something bruce and i struggle with every day yeah it's tough i i would say um the people aspect of it um, ironically, the, one of the big hard, you know, the harder decisions was at the time that we owned the screen print facility, um, we were at 50 plus personnel and I thought it was going, like my biggest, my biggest apprehension of letting things go were the people aspect. You know, I wanted to make sure that they all landed somewhere, but then that little, that little thing in the back of your head of what are people going to think if you go from a 50 person company down to, I don't think we went down to like 15 because wow. the majority of the, the, you know, people that we had were fulfillment or print related, um, personnel. Mm-hmm. And we made sure everyone landed somewhere. But at the end of the day, it's like, that's a hard thing as an owner. He's like, I have 50 people, right? And now I'm going to 15. What are people going to think? But again, the reality was, but if I go down to these 15, I'm probably going to double my numbers. Let's be honest, because I can focus on what we're good at. And this facility that I'm investing in, you know, my moving my fulfillment and my print to, they're going to output twice as many units as my personnel ever could. So that's double the figure. So do you really care about the number in your head? So I have to like definitely state that because they definitely had that moment of what are people going to think whenever you have to fill out the forms that are like, how many people are on your staff? One to 10, 20 to 40. You know, and you have to fill that out. And you were so proud that you got to that 50 person mark and you had to take a step back. But I think again, um, Personnel wise for us, we realized early on, I did um, early on that elevating from within first has always been a mission of mine and letting people, they're going to grow on your dime. You want to invest, continue to invest in them for a reason. So help elevate them, help educate them and move them up. Um, But then there always becomes that day where that personality might not be a fit for that next level. And it's a taxing thing for people that have helped you grind away for so many years to continue that grind. And it might not fit in their personal uh, roadmap. And so having that candid conversation, that's something that I've always been really a big believer in and making sure that you set people down and you really ask them, you know, as a, as a more of a personal relationship, where are you going and what do you want? Has anything changed for you? Um, just because you started with me when you were 22 and now you're 27, are you thinking about kids? Are you thinking about whatever is something not as much of a fit? Let's go over that and kept it really candid and, and really close to a lot of key people. And those same key people are still with me today um, because I helped invest into them during their uh, seasons of life when they needed it. And then they've invested back into us as an organization when we've needed it. So that respect is huge. Um, but now we're at a position to where we've had to make some pretty pretty significant hires um, and higher level individuals and bringing them in. And that's challenging um, because you're always trying to navigate bringing people in that are over people that have been there for seven years or whatever. It yeah, look like. that's but interesting dynamics. It's, it's tough, but I think candid, honest, and just, I am, re- I don't know if anybody picked up on this or not, but I am really straightforward. So I just call it like what it is. And I call it like I see it. I'm like, listen, you've been here for seven years. I'm going to bring this person in. They're going to be over you. What issues are you going to have? And don't tell me you're not going to have any because you and I both know it's just not true. So how about we just cut to the chase and we get through all that on the table so I can make sure that I answer any questions that you have or any fears that you have. So I'm really like, I That's say one the approach. Most Is that what you do, Steven? <laughs> um, I wish it was that eloquent. Uh, we, we dealt with <laughs> yeah. this over the weekend. You know, we brought our team to Long Beach. We talked about middle management. Dylan from right. Upstate called our whole team interns, which they were not happy about because they're all in their twenties <laughs> and work full time. But we talked about um, we talked about how we were planning to bring in middle management because I said that's one of my weaknesses is we need middle managers, we need experience, we need people that have have done this in life. And what fears do you all have? And their number one fear was, how are you still going to hold on to what makes Campus Inc. special? What happens if they don't believe in our vision and values? And that's a hard thing. That's what, you know, it's good when your employees are concerned about that, 
Right. Absolutely. But it's also something that you, Shauna, have to take responsibility of, of saying like, I'm going to bring someone in that's more experienced than me to tell my employees how to do their jobs. And I hope to God, this is the right choice or I'm going to look Absolutely. really bad. Right. No, I think um, it's about like ripping the bandaid off from the beginning and making sure that that conversation is that raw and candid every single week. Because the moment you stop talking about the organization, the structure, the, the hierarchy and all the above, meaning like if, if you don't have that on the table every single week, what happens is people will remove themselves for a couple of weeks from the conversation and then three or four weeks go by and people start to build this narrative in their head that doesn't exist, but they start to build it up and then they back it up with the silence because nobody's talking about it and nobody's bringing it up and we're not really interacting as a team. So just as much as I talk to my internal people of who's already there, I talk to the external people I'm bringing in and I'm like, listen, this is the dynamics. This is what you're walking in. I'm tasking you to go meet one-on-one with these individuals who are on my top of my list of concern to make sure that their head's still in the game and they're right. Meaning you're going to get with them on their level. You when, A big technique that I learned early on from a, a mentor of mine, I thought it was just so ridiculous at the time. But now that I've been in business year after year, it's, it's really one of those techniques that you go, this works. When you're talking to someone um, and you really want them to like, buy into the conversation and not buy in as in a negative way, but you want them to really like trust you and open up to you about like, be honest, sit at their same level. Both of you sit down and sit at their same level. Don't stand while they're sitting. You know, if they're sitting at their desk, don't walk in and talk to them, sit down next to them and look them in the eye and ask them, you know, face to face, just have that candidate of a conversation with someone. It, it makes all the difference in the world. I thought, again, I thought that was the most like ridiculous technique that someone taught me. I think it was probably 23 at the time when I learned that. And I was like, what? But I do it all the time and it works. People will be so much more open to you versus someone just walking in the room. And honestly, it's us, right? We're uncomfortable. So we'll walk in a room with our arms crossed and lean against a wall because we're uncomfortable and awkward with the conversation. But go sit down next to them and just like your body language is huge. Open up, let them know that you're you're being vulnerable and having this conversation. And I know that dudes don't talk about this a lot, but it's it's a real big tactic in negotiations too that that gets done. So there's a lot of like, study that I study the military and the, you know, the Navy SEALs and all that stuff. I love negotiations and tactics. They're really fun and intriguing to me psychology-wise, but people are an important part of our, all of our businesses and we have to invest in our time into them just as much as help them elevate financially, right? So wow. having those conversations, yeah. um, but that, also making it really open as a, as a dialogue internally, I think is massive and just keep talking about it. That elevation is interesting because... Uh, I think it really goes back to that traction book, right? Do you have the right people in the right seats? I've definitely done right people wrong seats and and try to not make that same mistake. And then now we'll have a job posting and say, this is what we're looking for this role. This is why it's important. You know, do you want to apply for it? Um, and try to interview them as if obviously they have a leg up, but try to interview them as if they're kind of fresh out, uh, and to compare with everybody else. But so Shauna, what's next for, um, game day couture and, and game day couture also has another name like shop the Soho as well. Yes. Right? So, Is it, yeah, just explain that tiny, really quickly it, and tiny quick. It's confusing. Cause if you look up game it's going to redirect you to shop And, uh, that is our sister company. So in 2018, uh, it, it organically ended up exploding, but basically we were selling all of the product that we styled with our licensed graphic products. So we ended up just building an entire brand off of that, which is awesome because it offset the seasonality of the of the team business. Um, but yeah, it's Shop to Soho Social House and it's women's, men's, kids, um, just everyday kind of fashion product, um, some better basics and luxe basics, but everyday fashion product is the best way to describe it. And we um, that's where we direct all of our forward facing kind of branding and stuff. But both are on social, but Shop to Soho and Game Day Couture and What's next for us is uh, other leagues. We're, we're picking up, we just picked up MLS, Major League Soccer. Um, we postponed all of those, like pursuing all those additional leagues like NFL and MLB when the pandemic hit. We had to postpone. Obviously, there were no sports. <laughs> so we're back on track. Um, pandemic, uh, you know, I know it was devastating for a lot of businesses, but it was really um, it was really great for ours. Um, I, you know, I say that, I know that a lot of people did not fare well, but for our business, um, it was it was helpful and, and growth. Um, but again, it's that positioning of because we invested into tech. Um, so 
we are looking to pursue the other leagues, pick up NFL and MLB and continue to expand licensing um, and distribution with those rights, as well as our e-com brand, the Shop the Soho. I think we've kind of pinpointed that there's another gap in a market where these big retailers are falling. There's not a lot to supply that uh, 25 to 45 age range of fashionable products that are like resonating with today's consumer that doesn't want to dress like they're 18 in college and, and doesn't want to dress like their mom who shops at Chico's still. So we're, we're tapping into that market and it's, it's growing. Oh, great. So we're not going to get a Chico sponsorship now. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Don't say Target Chico. either because Bruce is a big Target guy. <laughs> I, I just got I a Target Chico. credit card actually. Oh my nice. gosh. Nice. I was like, gosh, this thing shows up in my statement so much. Why don't I have the five? It's 5% off everything. Anyway, sorry. It's right. It's right. Red card. You're in the red club, man. That's uh, awesome. This is awesome. What do you think is the next big hire to, to, to wrap up Shauna? The, the next like really big that, that can, going to help oh, you guys perform gosh. this year? Um, I'm struggling with this one. I was talking to Steven about it. Like tech, we need a, like a CTO, we need tech, but it's our tech is so fragmented that it's so specialty in certain areas that it's hard to just hire someone that has experience in all layers of that. Um, because there, I think it's like two, you know, there's two leads there. Someone that I mean, we've interviewed enough people to know that there's a clear divide. Um, what the B2B side needs is not what the D2C side needs and it, they don't talk to each other. And the cool thing about developers is none of them communicate. <laughs> So like they talk, but they don't talk. Uh, like it's funny. They stay in their lanes. So uh, that's our next really big hire is probably determining how we're going to head um, with the future of tech. So no, we actually don't have a CTO. So that's crazy. That. That's and so interesting. Big. I feel like so many shops now they, they scale. I mean, you guys are dealing with two uh sync, but like you just keep scaling. And then eventually it's like, how do we integrate? How do we build the stuff that we need? And, and it's around our process and, um, some shops have a little small team too now. So I was just meeting yep. with Kevin at Stoketon, although they're overseas, but he has three dedicated people that are constantly working on his platform. Absolutely. Cool. This Andy was Mary. awesome. Shauna, thank you yeah, so, much so much for coming much, Shauna. on. This um, is Shauna Ferguson, yeah, I think, Game uh, Day Couture. You guys got to follow them. Make sure to, to check out their journey. And sh- there's so much information on you guys actually on the web because of Shark Tank. Ooh. So uh, you can see. <laughs> Watch some what you inter- read. Some of it's true. <laughs> so I get, you know, we have really articles cool. written about us all the time. And we're like, where did this person come from? That's that great. didn't happen. <laughs> Honestly, that's huge for press. But don't forget to follow yeah. them. Thank you, Shauna. Thank you. We'll see you guys on the next episode.